Thanks again for being here today, everybody. The word that we'll begin with today is overwhelmed. Overwhelmed. You look it up in Webster's, and it refers to the act of being submerged, of water rushing into a vessel of some kind and kind of pulling it down. It means to be overcome completely. I thought about that scene in the third Lord of the Rings movie, The Return of the King, when the ghost army comes and they, they flood the evil army of Sauron, they wipe them out, they are overwhelming them. If you go on Amazon.com and you search overwhelmed in the books section, this is interesting, there's a lot of them, and several of them seem to be coming from a faith perspective, which is encouraging. They have overwhelmed in the title, overwhelmed, prayer as your means through this season, or something like that. So that was an interesting theme. Another interesting theme is that many of the titles that include overwhelm also include a reference to motherhood. Being a mom, right? Like, come on. Like this, th there's some sincerity in this. This is, the, this is a real thing. And I don't say that to be pejorative toward moms. Far from it. I say that to recognize that overwhelmed is a word that is very prominent in our culture. It was prominent before COVID, before this global pandemic. And my theory is, especially here in Western Washington, especially on the east side, we kind of have come to expect it as a daily part of living. This kind of unrelenting intensity that we can feel, that was around before COVID. And you can feel that in all kinds of different ways. You can feel that in your career. You can feel that as you try to climb the ladder and achieve your goals and do good work professionally. Uh, I jokingly said to a friend of mine, uh, you don't move to the east side for a leisurely pace of life. Like, we don't move here to sort of like coast. We move here to sort of climb and try to figure out what's next. And that compounds the sense of being overwhelmed. In COVID, layer over that the experience of isolation. So already before COVID, there was a prominent sense, at least in my reading of our culture, pastorally, of being overwhelmed. Layer over that the isolation of COVID, and it's like compounded interest on credit card debt. It just ratcheted up those feelings of being overwhelmed. And this is true for so many of us, career, education, parenting, whatever you want to name. And what's helpful is not for all of us to sort of talk about being overwhelmed and then to say, like, good luck with that, you know, figure out your own way. What's helpful is to come to the scriptures, to come to the book of Job, as we have been for the last couple weeks, and to observe Job being overwhelmed, because he is in today's text, and to observe his friends, like Bildad the Shuhite, the, the main speaker in what Garrett just read for us, not doing a very good job of helping him get through that season of being overwhelmed. What can we learn from Job's experience of being overwhelmed? What took him to that place? Like, we're going to catch up a little bit today about why Job was in this place of being overwhelmed. And we're going to do this through four different movements. So first, we're going to talk about context, like, got to kind of catch up to where we are in the story of Job. We're going to talk about his buddy, Bildad, and my kind of summary of what Bildad says to Job is the good, the bad, and the ugly, because he says some good things. He says some bad things. And then he says some really ugly things to him. The third thing we're going to talk about is just Job's experience of being overwhelmed. And the fourth thing we're going to talk about is the path of Jesus. So context, Bildad, Job, and the path of Jesus. First, let's talk about the context. We are studying the book of Job, and we meet Job in the very first chapter, the very first couple of verses of the book. We learn very quickly that Job is successful. He has achieved a level of success in his business and in sort of what would have been esteemed and regarded as a good person in the time frame that he lived in. 
And primarily, one thing we learn about Job, because it's mentioned multiple times, is he's faithful to God. He has a relationship with Yahweh, the God of the Bible. This is pretty remarkable, actually, because most scholars think the book of Job comes from sometime around the time of Abraham, the patriarchs, the earliest days of Israel's history as a group of people. They weren't yet into 12 tribes, but they were, they were a nation state. They would kind of wander around, and they kind of knew one another. They had familial relations with each other, but they were figuring out what does it mean to relate to Yahweh, this God who's graciously reached out to them through their ancestor Abraham and is now walking with them and teaching them and shepherding them and showing them the way forward. We kind of compared it to early stages in a dating relationship where you're kind of figuring stuff out together. You haven't been through really hard stuff yet, but you're going to get there. Then Job faces a series of catastrophes. And there really is no better word to describe these than catastrophes. In order, Job loses his entire means of production. He loses his livestock, all of his cattle, all of his ability to make money for his family, gone. He loses his home, this physical place where he belonged. The house collapses in a storm. More tragically than that, he loses the people in the house. He loses his children. And I'm looking out and I see a lot of parents in the room and losing a child in my mind is unfathomable, but losing all of my children, I don't know that there'd be much of me left. So Job has lost these things. And then finally, at the very end of chapter two, he loses his health, his personal comfort, safety, security. He starts to be afflicted with boils. All these things happen one by one by one. Now make no mistake, if any one of those things were to happen to you or I, just one, we would be devastated. If you lost your job tomorrow, if you lost your children, if you lost something that was so valuable to you and it was just gone, it's brutal. So emotionally, Job is in this space where he has just lost everything. And then at the end of chapter 2, his three friends come to visit him. And here's the painting that we kind of used last week to talk about these three friends. So this is a painting called Job and His Friends. It's painted by a Russian painter named Rapine. And so featured in this painting are kind of from left to right, Job's wife sitting directly behind him, Job who's sitting on the ground looking like a broken, devastated man. He's got a sheet draped over him. His body is just torn up. His face and everything just looks mangled. And then continuing to the right, his first friend, don't know which friend this is, but this is the friend that we talked about last week who's doing the right thing. This group of friends, they come, and the, the text tells us in chapter 2, they just sit with him for a week, and they don't say anything. And when you're in the midst of suffering, to have people who will come and be with you and for you and just sit with you is such a gift. This week, we're turning our attention to these two guys over here on the right. And again, we don't know, you know, which one is Eliphaz and which one is Bildad. But if you look at their faces, the men on the right, if you look at their body language and their posture, it's very different than the man who's sitting on the ground. They're looking down at Job. They're coming at him from a position of authority and superiority. They're, one of them seems to be puffing himself up. The other one kind of has this more reserved look on his face, like he's looking at something that he can't enter into. And so last week we talked about his friend Eliphaz trying to comfort him, basically saying to him, hey, Job, look, in my experience of God, all these bad things that are happening to you, it's because there's something wrong between you and God. You need to fix that problem. You need to confess. And Job says, essentially, in chapter 6 and 7, 
I hear you, but that's not right. Because I'm innocent. Because I've done nothing to offend God to this degree. And he actually kind of helps level set the argument by saying to Eliphaz, look, you're telling me I need to fix this. The only one who can fix this is God. Only God can relieve this suffering and take this burden off of me. It's not going to be my actions. It's going to be the grace and mercy of God. So that's our context. That's kind of catching us up on where we are. Now we need to talk about the good and the bad and the ugly. So if you have your Bible, open up to Job chapter 8 with me. We're just going to kind of skim through it like a stone skipping across the water and look at the good and the bad and the ugly. So first, let's talk about the good. Bildad actually says something true to Job at the beginning of his argument, and it's phrased as a rhetorical question. So remember, rhetorical question, it's a literary device to elevate a truth that needs to be seen for the argument to continue. So here is the rhetorical question. Bildad says this to Job. Does God twist justice? Does the Almighty twist what is right? Now, twist here meaning corrupt, make it wrong, deviate it from the direction that it should be going. He asked this of Job, not because he thinks Job doesn't agree with him, but basically reminding Job, Job, we serve a God of justice. And this is remarkable if you think about it. If we go to the analogy of, you know, this is early in the relationship between the Israelites and the people and, and God, they're figuring each other out. Well, one thing they have figured out is that they agree that God is a just God that he is merciful, that he cares about right and wrong, that he will not let evil go unpunished forever. And it's wonderful that Bildad says this at the beginning, but like so many things that happen, especially in the church, we can start out with a great truth and we can corrupt it very quickly. Case in point, chapter, uh, verse 4 is where it gets bad, really bad. And this is right after he's just affirmed that God is just. Bildad says this to Job, your children must have sinned against God, so their punishment was well-deserved. Bethany Community Church, can I beg you to never say this to anyone? <laughs> like, don't ever, ever tell someone, I know what God is doing, and the punishment that you get is deserved. Like, don't do it. It might be true, it might be entirely accurate, but it is not helpful to just carpet bomb someone like what Bildad is doing here. It is not going to edify and lift their soul closer to Jesus. This, I, I cannot imagine someone saying this to a person in grief. This is the opposite of what you want to do to someone who's in the midst of grief. Job is in an emotional state that this would be like napalm being thrown on him. Bildad is clumsy, with the truth. He is careless with the truth, whether this is true or not. And it's not okay for him to have said it to Job. And then he gets ugly. So we've got the good and the bad. Now we've got to talk about the ugly. Job hears even worse things coming from Bildad. And here's what Bildad says to him. He said, this happens, the loss of children, the loss of all this stuff, to all who forget God. Job, you have forgotten God. The hopes of the godless evaporate. That word godless right there is used very judiciously in the Old Testament. It only occurs 12 times in the entire Old Testament. And usually when we see a word that is used that infrequently, it's because it is so powerful. It is not a word that is meant to be thrown around lightly. He is calling him a pagan heretic. Their confidence hangs by a thread. They are leaning on a spider's web. They cling to their home for security, but it won't last. They try to hold it tight, but it will not endure. 
Bildad is saying to Job, Job, look, I think I knew you, I thought I knew you, but clearly you're not the person that I thought you were. I thought you were a godly, righteous person. That's what Eliphaz said last week. But clearly you're not. You've deceived me. You are a godless, ungodly person. And I don't want anything to do with you. Job, this would not be happening to you if you were good in your relationship with God. Clearly something is so wrong with you that we just need to fix this. Have you ever had someone do this to you? Have you ever had someone just roll a completely false accusation in front of you, particularly as it relates to your faith? Now, typically this doesn't happen in the church in front of others. This happens behind closed doors. This is why churches are notorious for being sort of gossip factories. This happens, though, in our secular world. We see people who call out and, and decry Christian leaders for having messed things up, for, you know, making mistakes. It happens all the time. And yet, to indict someone and call them godless, man, that would be quite an accusation to hear someone throw at you. And this is exactly what's happened to Job. So it's understandable now that we can turn to his situation and say, yeah, Job is overwhelmed. Not only has he walked through those unbelievable griefs and losses that we talked about, not only has he had one friend come and try to systematically deconstruct him, now he's got another friend trying the 2.0 version of that deconstruction. His sorrow and his grief are as deep and as wide as the River Jordan. And so, what's going to happen with Job? He's in the pit of despair. Well, in Job chapter 9, which I would encourage you to read on your own, he responds to these allegations. And he begins by saying to Bildad, look, fundamentally, I don't disagree with your theology. He doesn't try to squiggle away from the truth that God is a just God. But what he, don't, what he won't do is he won't let Bildad's venomous words detract him from the vision he has of who God is. And he certainly won't let it detract from the reality of his situation, which is he is innocent. In chapter 9, several times, verse 20, 21, elsewhere, he affirms, I am innocent. He holds on to the truth in the midst of chaos. Can the same be said of us? Can the same be said of you and me? If people are throwing darts at you all day long, eventually you're going to say something like, okay, stop with the darts. Stop, stop. I'll say what you want. The church has done this. We've abdicated the truth of the scriptures many times out of cultural convenience and wanting to appease people. And I get being pastoral and sensitive, but it is not okay. It is not okay to abdicate the truth to end something that is being thrown at you. You need to have a conversation around it. And that's not happening in this moment. So Job doesn't appeal to Bildad. He doesn't even try to argue with Bildad necessarily. He appeals straight to the Lord. He goes straight to God. He declares his innocence on the basis of his knowledge of who God is. And it's almost like he's creating this rationale that I just, I was so pleased to kind of discover this this week. If I am innocent, Job is saying, if this is true over here, if I'm innocent, if I have not sinned against God, and if God is just, which is what Bildad just said, if those two things are true, then I need help. I need help because my suffering is continuing. If I am innocent, if God is just, and if this suffering continues, I need help. Maybe God isn't fully seeing what's happening to me. Maybe there's been some kind of miscommunication or misunderstanding, and this is where we get into a glimpse 
of the Messiah in today's text. Look at chapter 9, verse 32 with me. Job says, God is not a mortal like me, so I cannot argue with him or take him to trial. In other words, we'll get into this next week. He's saying, God is God and I am not. I don't see this fully. God sees this fully. But look how he continues. If only there were, what? A mediator. A mediator. That should give you some goosebumps on the back of your neck. If only there was a mediator, someone to stand between us, someone who could bring us together. The mediator could make God stop beating me, and I would no longer live in terror of his punishment. Then I could speak to him without fear, but I cannot do that in my own strength. Job doesn't deny that he's overwhelmed. He doesn't try to put on a happy face. He doesn't jettison the truth of his innocence. But he also says, I can't keep going. I can't keep going. I need a mediator. I need someone to help lift this burden off of me. This is too much for me. When's the last time you felt like this is too much for me? And you're parenting and you're teaching and trying to build a business. When have you felt like that? That Hebrew word for mediator is yakah. It's a legal term. It's a term that would have been in the courtrooms of the day. It means to argue, to reason frankly, and ultimately it is applied to people who vindicate others, who set others free. Friends, this is where we see the path of Jesus in the text. This is where we see the gospel of Jesus Christ coming even from the earliest days of the nation of Israel. This is Jesus' role and his duty as Messiah, more than a mediator but the creator, the redeemer, the sustainer of the universe is Jesus, and we see him here. Because he's going to come in between sinful humanity and our holy and just and perfect God and say, we need to figure this out. And more than creating an agreement or writing down a contract or creating some kind of like, okay, I'll give you this if you give this, and kind of bartering, Jesus doesn't do that. The gospel is, All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. No one is righteous, not even one. Try as we might, our behavior modification will not get us eternal life now or in eternity. It won't. And Jesus knows this because he came as a human, fully God and fully human. But it takes coming to the point of his own moment of being overwhelmed, I think, for this to really crystallize the gospel for us and crystallize the gospel to a degree in the narrative of Scripture. The night of Jesus' death, the night of his betrayal, he's in a garden. And I found this piece of artwork this week that I thought was stunning in its depiction of the Garden of Gethsemane. This is simply titled Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. The artist is Robert Walter Weir. He was around in the 1800s. His most well-known piece of artwork is a depiction of the pilgrims landing at Plymouth Rock, which is featured in our nation's capital, in the Capitol Rotunda. And this piece of artwork lives at the New York Metropolitan Museum of Arts collection. It's a watercolor on charcoal. It's almost an apocalyptic scene. You see Jesus stretched out front and center. He's covering his face. He's pure agony. That is not the look of someone who's at rest. 
The lines are too frayed and fragment. This is, this is someone who's in torment. The skies are dark. There's a sunset over here. The day is ending. The night is coming. And back here, there's this gathering of some shadowy figures. The people that came to the garden with him. The men who were there as his disciples. And in this moment, the NIV translation, I think, captures this so perfectly. Then Jesus said to them, my soul is what, church? My soul is overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. Stay here and keep watch with me. The English translation doesn't even do this justice. It is a a moment of emotional despair that robs the body of strength. I am overwhelmed with sorrow to the point of death. The mediator knows what it means to be overwhelmed. The mediator can stand in the place of Job and carry that crushing weight. The mediator would be crushed by it on the cross. He would bear it. He would go from that place of despair in the garden to a place of even greater agony. Because he's the mediator, because he's Messiah, because he must bridge that gap that we could never get bridge. The one that Job cried out for. In my suffering, I can't fix this. I need help. Make it stop. Lord, please. And in Jesus Christ, we have that answer. What I want us to consider as we close and as we get ready to have some discussion time is this. Job faces this incredible suffering and he responds to it by asking for help and by staying the course. We'll see in the next few chapters of Job, like he hangs in there. It's hard, but he hangs in there. He engages in more dialogue with his friends. He waits for God to relieve this pain and this sorrow from him. And Jesus Christ, the true and better Job, does the same thing. He stays the course. Father, take this cup away from me. I don't want it, but not my will, but yours be done. That's the very next line after this. He stays the course and he asks for help. The Holy Spirit empowering Jesus Christ to do what he's been called to do. Should we not model our response to suffering and being overwhelmed in a similar way? Maybe you are called to stay the course in the midst of a place of suffering that you're in right now. If you're going through a hard season in your marriage, stay the course. Keep working on it. If you're going through a difficult time in your business or in your ministry or in your parenting, stay the course. Those bonds are sacred. They should not be broken easily. But maybe you need to ask for help. Maybe you've been trying way too hard to carry it all. And your shoulders are only so broad and your strength is only so much. Both are pathways we need to consider. So, I'll invite us to turn to our discussion groups and reflect on these two options uh, as we continue in worship together. Here's your discussion questions. The first one is a really important theological question. Introduce yourself, how long you've been attending Bethany, and then whether you prefer brownies with nuts or no nuts, and why. It's a very important question. Then, more seriously, in the week ahead, where do you need to stay the course? 
What's been a place of challenge, suffering, discouragement for you? And you're going, you know what? If I'm being honest, I just need to hang in there. And the second part of that question is, where might you need to consider asking for help? Pick one. Pick, I need to stay the course here and ask your group to pray for you. Or pick, I need to ask for help. I just, I, I need the Lord to ask, to intervene and give me some help. So those are your discussion questions. Go ahead and turn in your chairs and uh, chat with one another. Friends that are joining us online, you're going to be put in the breakout rooms, and then we'll regather together in about 15 minutes. Uh, let me pray for us as we go to our discussion. Jesus, thank you for this time. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for renewing this uh, gospel urgency that you are so near to us in our suffering, if only we would hear it and receive it from you. So help us, we pray. Help us to speak to one another, or if we're just not in that place today, help us to listen and honor what others are sharing. And may we be encouraged through this time of discussion. We ask in Jesus' name.